joy to be able to get Rach here. Come on, Rach. I, I tried to look. I don't think the closest I could get. Look, come here. You can't see it. I reckon you could be in that mass of people in that picture there or in this one because Rach grew up in this church. So Rach is one of those young children that are either sitting in the sports hall, listening to, there's Polly just shouting away something really loud at people probably. And then um, all the people, because Rach is an example of that generation that has gone, that grew up here because this was the church that her parents brought her to. And because of the choices that she made to follow Jesus, she now stands here much younger than me. Years younger, years younger than me, but choosing to follow Jesus and to love him. And that's what we long to see, that it wouldn't be Rach is the end of the line. <laughs> that Rach is the end of the line, the last generation to follow God in this place. No, we want to see future generations that go on to know God in all they do. And so it works once. Let's see it work again into the future. Is that okay? All right. I did it before to you because it's jokes, but which, can we do the um, Harry Kane chant as you're about to go? Yeah, I love this. Andrew always likes this. I think Zeke, you'll appreciate it as well for your mum. So in Tottenham, Harry Kane is one of their own players. So when he scores and does it, he just broke the record the other day. They sing, he's one of our own, he's one of our own. Oh, Harry Kane, he's one of our own. So can we just sing it to Rach? Because it always amuses me. Is that okay? I just feel like, you know, like 200 goal scorer, striker, Rachel Wilson. I'd rather have Rachel in my church every day of the week. So are you ready? She's one of our own. She's one of our own. Oh, Rachel Wilson, she's one of our own. Yes. Oh, I love it. I can't get enough of it. I'm actually, I have to be a Liverpool fan because my, my sons and my husband are a Liverpool fan. But that's enough to make me want to become a Tottenham fan as well. That's amazing. <laughs> Right, good morning, it's really great to be with you. And I'm following on from last week. For those of you who were here last week, there was a dinghy on the stage, and there were people in the dinghy, and I can only assume these things because I was listening to the whole preach on a podcast, because I wasn't able to be in the meeting. And I was like, who's Martha? What's she done to deserve this happening to her? There's, I think there's some dressing up going on. I think there's some other stuff going on. But, um, but Ollie pulled out some great themes last week that I just wanna pick up this morning as we hit Acts 28. And we're going to be focusing on three things. We're going to be looking at the unusual kindness of God. We're going to be looking at what happens when unwelcome drama hits our lives and follows us. And we're also going to be looking at an unchanging God who is as faithful in Paul's shipwreck as he is in your shipwreck and in ours as well. So unwelcome drama, unusual kindness, unchanging God. We're going to read Acts 28 verses 1 to 10. Once safely on shore, so this is after the shipwreck, we found out that the island was called Malta. And the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. 
There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He's like the Roman governor, powerful, wealthy guy. He welcomed us to his home, which is really generous because there's 276 of them who've just been shipwrecked. It's a big house. He showed us very generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So we know, we're hitting Acts 28, knowing some things already. We know that Paul has a really clear destination in mind. He wants to get to Rome. That's where he's headed. In fact, we know it's stronger than that. He longs to reach Rome. Because when he writes to the church in Rome, he begins by saying, for God is my witness that I continually remember you and I always ask in my prayers if perhaps now at last I may succeed in visiting you according to the will of God. He is so desperate to get to Rome that he's actually willing to overlook the fact that it's happening in chains. He's going to Rome as a prisoner and that is one way to visit Italy as a prisoner but it's not the ideal way to visit Italy but Paul's willing to overlook it. You see he really wants to get there because he wants to encourage the church. He wants to be encouraged by them. He needs their help because he wants to go on to reach Spain afterwards. He's desperate to reach Rome for another reason as well. You see, Paul has gone up the chain of power through Acts, as we've been reading. He's testified in impressive Roman building after impressive Roman building. And he's done that because he's advocating for the gospel. He is preaching the gospel in every seat of power that he goes to. So actually, him... He's desperate to reach Rome because the destination of Rome means that he can testify in front of Caesar. He can testify to the resurrection hope of the gospel and he can testify in defense of new Christians as well. So far, as we've gone through Acts, Paul has been on trial or he's faced accusation in front of the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, Felix in chapter 24, Festus in chapter 25 and King Agrippa in chapter 26. But he sees the providence of God, that even as a prisoner, God is leading him to a good destination, to the very seat of power of the Roman Empire, where he can share the gospel there as well. So, by Acts 27, it feels like Rome is in sight, but he's on a boat, he's crossing the Mediterranean. And he's ready to take this golden opportunity to share the gospel in Rome. But unwelcome drama hits him. So we saw in Acts 27 last week, Martha can sympathise actually about unwelcome drama, but we saw as in the dinghy acted out on the stage that he faces this time unwelcome drama that comes in the form of a 14-day storm. And the storm is so bad that they're sailing by celestial navigation and they just can't see the stars. They are completely disoriented. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and Paul says they've been in a state of perpetual suspense now for two weeks. All 276 of them on board are living on adrenaline. They're exhausted. I don't know how long you can live on adrenaline, but we know now, science tells us, that actually the human body is designed well to live on adrenaline. It's a real gift to us for a few minutes at a time, isn't it? Helps us escape a dangerous situation. It's, It's a gift to us, adrenaline. But it's not good for us to live on adrenaline for hours, days, weeks, months or years and we know that that takes a toll on our bodies and our bodies keep the score. 
So Paul's really practical with the people on board. And he says, guys, you've been living in this state of perpetual suspense for 14 days. You need to eat something. You need to drink something. And he reassures them, he's, you've got to get your heart rates down. He's reassuring them. He tells them that not one of them is going to be lost. The boat might be lost. Not one of them will be. They're not going to lose a hair from their head. And that's the scene we face as we see they have all arrived on the coast of an island, whether they floated on planks of wood or whether they've swum through the sea, they arrive exhausted but alive on the coastline at a destination they were never aiming for. So if we put up the verse again, Acts 28 verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. And worse, it's raining. They've arrived in Malta and it's raining. Paul was aiming for the seat of power of the whole Roman Empire so that he can testify to the gospel hope. And instead, he's washed up on a rainy island. Now, maybe you at times have had moments a little bit like where you've had an epiphany and you've thought, how have I ended up here? This is just not what I was aiming for. I was aiming for Rome, I was aiming for Caesar and somehow I'm on this rainy island and I'm wet and I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm exhausted. How have I ended, ship, ended up shipwrecked like this? And I just wanted to share a slightly silly story, a version of when I had one of those moments of epiphany, the moment your eye opens and think, this isn't where I was heading for, this is a completely different destination. Now for me, this happened when I was 21 and I was living in Washington DC and I was interning in an office there and I got given my very first out of the office activity. Up until now it had all been photocopying but now I had my first opportunity to leave the office and this was my West Wing moment. I was going to go into Washington DC and I was going to go and collect some documents from the Guatemalan consulate and it felt like this is my moment to shine. So off I headed. My supervisor, before I went, said to me, listen, Rachel, I'd only been to the Indian embassy before to collect some documents. And she said to me, Rachel, you've got to know something. The Guatemalan consulate is a lot smaller than the Indian embassy. It's basically like a big house. Um, so don't expect the same. It's, it's just basically a big house. Don't go in the front door. That's the diplomatic entrance. What you want to do is go around the side entrance and go right to the back and that's where the office is and they'll give you the documents and then just come back. So off I headed. Now before I tell, go any further, I should give you some information that I did not have at that point, which is that Washington DC is split into four different quadrants. You can have the address four different times. The same address will exist four different times across the city with a vital two letters after the end of each address, northwest, north-south, southeast, or southwest. This, I was, ignorance is bliss. I had no idea about this. So I called the cab, and he drives me a fairly long way to the Guatemalan consulate. And as I arrive, I think she wasn't lying. This is a much more residential area than I was expecting for the Guatemalan consulate. But as we pull up, and to my great credit, to his great credit, the um, taxi driver says, are you sure this is right? I say, look at the address again. This is definitely the address. This is right. And there's a side entrance. Or it's a side gate, but that's still a side entrance. So I let myself in the side gate. <laughs> and it's there, standing in the back garden, looking at somebody's washing line, <laughs> that I had my epiphany 
this is not the Guatemalan consulate. And I am standing, in, actually trespassing, in someone's garden in a city with fairly liberal gun laws around trespassing. And just, to set, just so you can picture the scene a little better, I actually have a Google Earth shot of the exact garden I was standing in. Um, so that's me, if you can picture the scene, trespassing in that person's back garden. And I've also got a picture, if you put up the next slide, that's the Guatemalan consulate, which I think, I think you'll agree has more flags and looks like more of an impressive official building than the bungalow garden where I was actually standing. So this is just a really silly example of a moment of epiphany where you realise this is not where I was aiming for. When you think you're headed to advocate for the persecuted and to have your West Wing moment and to testify and actually you end up in completely the wrong place. We all face moments of shipwreck and some are more funny than others but perhaps you've hit 2023 thinking, Eastbourne? Really? Eastbourne? Is, is this where I'm meant to be? Is this where I've ended up? We've got several Ukrainian families among us at the moment who we love really dearly, but we know that their plan was to be in a peaceful Kiev right now, not to be living here. And maybe for you, it's a job situation or a health challenge or a family breakdown, but you can't, you've become shipwrecked in your own way and you're asking, how, how have I ended up here? And there's just such great comfort in this passage, cling on to it for the shipwrecked. And there's also comfort for the unwelcome drama and the messiness that comes with life. So let's go back to Acts 28, verse one. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. And I love, let's pause there for a sec, I love that phrase, unusual kindness. By the grace of God, he sends people to you in your moments of shipwreck who show something about his kindness and they show you unusual kindness. And I've often likened it to a chess game. There's been times in my life where somebody, it's like somebody has been strategically placed next to me to protect me and to help me move forward. And for me, one of those people was Anne Blaber, some of you will remember her. But she came into my life at a really key point and she just came alongside me and she taught me how to be a mum and a carer. And I'd never met anybody else before who could teach me how to do that. And it was exactly the timing of God that she arrived to do that as well. And when we have those people, sometimes we've got to open our eyes and we go, who are those people for me today? Who is God put a place around me to show me unusual kindness? And when we spot them, we take that sunbeam, that person, and we follow it all the way back up to the sun. And we say, something about that kindness shows me something about how kind you are. Unusual kindness. So perhaps for you, you need to open your eyes and see who's the person, the gift of God to me, showing me unusual kindness right now. But also, perhaps you just need to open your eyes and go, who am I for someone else? There's other people sitting around you facing the shipwreck of life and perhaps you're called to show them unusual kindness and be that person for them as well. And we all love unusual kindness. I've got loads of stories of unusual kindness. I love it. I can't get enough of the kindness of strangers. It's fantastic. But what I don't appreciate in a story is unwelcome drama. 
and I can almost before we go before we go out for the day for a day trip or just really to the shop, I'll say to my family if there's just if we could just go, not cause a scene, and then just be completely just normal and then come back, and then I remember I'm married to Andrew and that's never that's never gonna happen. I said goodbye to that opportunity on my wedding day. So un, there are moments that we face unwelcome drama. And Paul faces plenty of unwelcome drama the whole way. In fact, that's a good summary of the book of Acts, isn't it? Constant unwelcome drama. I love what Ollie did last week, actually, of getting the dinghy and getting everyone up. Because if we read texts like this, like Acts 28, if we just read it as a text, we can lose, it can become a bit dry and we can lose some of the drama within it. But if, it's a bit like Shakespeare. If you read Shakespeare at school, it can be a bit boring. It's much better to see Shakespeare performed. But even better than that is to perform in Shakespeare. So actually, when we're reading the Bible, God invites us onto the stage to go, become part of this scene. Where do you fit? Which character are you? So you need to visualize this on the rainy beaches of Malta. Paul is wet and he's exhausted and he's hungry and he's thirsty and the cortisol from the trauma that he's just been through for the last 14 days is probably coursing through his body and this is what happens next. Let's go to Acts 28 verses 3 to 4. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, so a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastens itself onto his hand and when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, so it's still there, there's the snake hanging off his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. So within 30 seconds or so, Paul not only has a snake hanging from his hand, but he's also being accused of murder. It goes on to verse five to six, but Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a god. So in the space, just in, this is quite the emotional roller coaster. In the space of a few short hours, Paul has gone from being a, a prisoner at sea to being a shipwreck victim, to being an asylum seeker, to being accused of murder, to being hailed a god. It's quite the roller coaster, and it's a really good thing that Paul's core identity wasn't placed in what the crowd thought of him. Because the crowd is fickle, and the crowd can turn, and so can the circumstances of life turn in a moment. His core identity, we can find when he sees his letter to the Philippian church, actually, because when he writes to the church in Philippi, we know something about who Paul is, because he says, I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, in snake bites. I've learned to be content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. You can imagine the church in Philippi having this letter read out to them. You can imagine them leaning forward, just going, wow, how have you learned how to be content? How can I learn it? Can you lay hands on me and give me the gift of contentment? Verse 13, he says, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. 
So the crowd is fickle. The crowd will turn on you in a moment and the circumstances of life will turn on you in a moment as well. But God is unchanging and he is ever looking, he's ever searching and looking to impart strength to his children, to give out strength. And that strength, when it comes, when the strength of God comes to you, the strength comes for battle, but it also comes for contentment. Comes for both. It comes for the battle, but when the battle is done, it, it comes for you to stand. When all else is done, to stand, to withstand. The power of God is available for those having done all else, to, but to stand moments in your life. And it's really easy for us, even reading the, even reading this chapter, for us to mock the islanders, isn't it? And just think, oh, for goodness sake, one minute you think he's a murderer, the next minute you think he's a god. And they're looking for some sort of reason in the mystery of suffering. They're desperate to find something understandable. He's been bitten by a snake. What does this mean he's done previously? You see, they haven't heard the gospel yet, these islanders, and they believe, they believe in the goddess justice. And that's perhaps because they've looked around the beautiful island of Malta, even in the rain, very beautiful. They've looked around and they've thought somebody must have created this. And so what they've done is they've concocted a God of their own understanding. They've built a God of their own understanding. And the thing is, when you build a God of your own understanding, they are understandable, but they're also, there's not much room for mystery and suffering. And they're not necessarily merciful either. They're a God of your own making, a God of your own understanding. But when we hit unwelcome drama or suffering in our lives, actually we can do just the same. Our perceptions of God, of who he is, what his character is like, can become really distorted. And we can start to read all sorts of meaning into our suffering that isn't true, that isn't intended, that's actually become slightly distorted. It's a bit like when you go to the circus, you stand in front of one of those circus mirrors and like you've got really big ears or you're really fat or you're really thin, it just distorts your reflection. And we can do that with how we understand the character of God when we hit times of suffering as well. We might be able to understand God as, God as holy or God as just, but we might struggle more to understand that he's my father because that's hard to reconcile with the pain that I'm going through right now. We can build quite a pagan God and forget the true God because we want quick answers. This happened because of this. We want him to be more understandable sometimes and so we build a God of our own understanding. Because when pain comes, it can feel punitive, it can feel like punishment. And something, especially physical pain, can feel like punishment. Or at the very least, it can feel like God just holding you at arm's length, just going, this in some ways, I need to be apart from you in some ways. Can feel like the goddess justice coming for us a second time. And you can imagine the islanders saying, look, Paul, he's got his comeuppance, he must be a murderer because this thing has happened to him. The goddess justice has come back for him. The thing is, the goddess justice will pour out her punishment on you. But the father pours out all the punishment on the son and there is nothing left for you and we face it pulls really clear and so is James in the New Testament we're going to face trials and suffering all sorts of trials and suffering trials of many many kinds 
Paul's lived it. He's faced imprisonment, persecution. He's faced shipwrecks, snake bites, but the punishment fell on Jesus. There's trials of many kinds, but there's no punishment left for you when you're in Christ because the punishment has all fallen on Jesus. So I don't know why people sitting here today might be going through suffering that they're facing, but it's not because the goddess justice gets a second go. The punishment falls on him. And how do we know that? How do we actually know what he's like? When our minds are fuzzy and we're going through pain and everything's distorted and we're looking at circus mirrors and we don't know which way is north, how do we know what he's really like? What do we cling to? This is why we've got to, again and again, in our worship, in our preaching, we're constantly coming back to the cross and the empty tomb. Because when all else fails, when our mind is tired and we're in pain and we can't work it out, the cross and the empty tomb tell us really key things about who he is that don't get distorted. You see, the cross of Christ tells me that he is definitely, definitely good. And it also tells me that he definitely cares about me. And the empty tomb tells me that he is definitely also filled with power. I know if I can just look and find my compass at the cross of Christ, I can see he is good, he cares for me, and he's also filled with power. And that power comes to do something really specific for us in the shipwrecks of life. And Paul's passionate about this, and he returns to this theme again and again through his writing and through his letters, especially in the New Testament. He's constantly coming back to this theme of us knowing the love of God in the, in the pain, suffering, and shipwrecks of life, because that's hard. It's hard for us to know it, and we need power to know it. If we go to Ephesians 3, this is Paul writing again. This is the man who faces the shipwrecks and the snake bites, and this is why He's not swayed by the crowd or swayed by the circumstances. He says this in Ephesians 3, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, out of his generous capacity, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? Why must we be strengthened in our inner being? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, to get your head around how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And if you don't know what to pray for someone who's going through a hard time, just read Ephesians 3. Just pray Ephesians 3 over them. It's such a great place to start. We pray scripture over people. Because there's such comfort here. There's such comfort in these words. Because this theology, all these acts, all these letters that we're reading, they weren't written in coffee shops on a sunny day. I, I, I like to write in a coffee shop on a sunny day. It's a really creative experience for me. I like it. These weren't written in coffee shops on sunny days. Our theology comes from bruised people locked inside prison cells who know what it is to suffer. And it's written, it's not written from the good times for the good times. It's written from a place of suffering, specifically for a place of suffering. And there's comfort here for you in your shipwreck. 
And what happens when that love of Christ takes root in us, when we become grounded and established in love and start to understand that you are definitely good, that you are definitely kind, that you definitely care for me and that you are filled with power and able to give me that power. What do we do with that? Once it's reached us, we get to abide in it, we get to wallow in it, we get to live in it, but we also don't want to just be cul-de-sacs of the love of God, cul-de-sacs of blessing. It was always with the aim of becoming an avenue of blessing to the people around us because there's going to be people around you facing shipwrecks that you don't even know about and you've got an opportunity to be an avenue of God's love towards them, to show them unusual kindness but also to be a means of his grace to people around you. And that's what Paul does in this story. You see, the mission of God continues even in the shipwrecks of life. So he's at this destination he never aimed for. He never aimed to be in Malta. He wanted to be in Rome, but the mission of God continues in the shipwreck, wherever he is. So let's go to Acts 28, verses 9 to 10. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island were brought and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to set sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So the passage today, it ends with Paul getting to work and putting the love of God to work as well, in the mission of God. He's doing what God's called him to do, and it might not be in front of Caesar. It might not be at the Guatemalan consulate. It might not be where he was aiming for, but the mission of God continues where he's placed. And so for three months, once it's established, he's neither a devil nor a God. He can share the gospel. He can pray for the sick. He can act justly. He can love mercy. He can walk humbly with his God in the middle of the shipwreck in the place he never intended to be. He can minister God in the unexpected places of life, and so can we. And the reason he can do that is because for for Paul, everything has changed, but nothing has changed. And that's our story as a shipwrecked Christian today. If you're living in suffering, everything has changed, but also nothing has changed. You're found in Christ. He's your firm foundation when you encounter unwelcome drama, the cross, the cross of Christ stands over wide and he's not holding you at arm's length. He's got his arms outstretched perpetually towards you. He's longing to embrace you in your suffering. The cross tells you that. He's not holding you at arm's length. He's longing to embrace you. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life to grasp the love of God in the midst of suffering. As well, we need the power that raised Jesus from the dead to be at work in us, to grasp in our grief, to grasp in our pain, in our confusion, to grasp who he is and to know the love of God that grounds us and keeps us rooted to the ground when all else fails. I wonder if the band can come up. We're just going to stand together. Could we just have that Ephesians 3 slide back up? I just want to pray that over people this morning. I'm going to let Ollie work out how, where we go from there. But I just want to pray Ephesians 3 over everyone here.
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray this for you, King's Church. Just put out your hands now. I pray that out of his generous, glorious, all-sufficient riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, Jesus himself, may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted, grounded, anchored to the ground, deeply established in love, may be given extraordinary power together with all of his holy people to somehow get your arms around how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that you would know that your minds would be filled with peace because the love that surpasses knowledge would fill them that you would be filled to the measure of all the extravagant fullness of God Lord we ask you for nothing less we ask it for the person standing next to us that they'd be filled with the extravagant love of God that they'd be certain of some things when all else is uncertain Lord I pray behold the cross of Christ and be absolutely certain of some things Lord we find ourselves in you this morning and we'll find ourselves in you tomorrow and we'll find ourselves in year after year after year we find ourselves in you our lives are hidden in Christ we thank you Lord Jesus we thank you this wonderful wonderful truth Wonderful. God's word is such a gift to us. Rach, just beautiful to open God's word. Um, what I'd love us to do is, rather than start to sing, sometimes I have moments that I don't necessarily want to sing something to God. I want to work that out in communion with others. So I just want to encourage you, if rather than you saying, oh, could I pray for you? I just want you to pray with someone. So rather than saying, oh, can I pray for you as if I'm the person praying something for you, just wonder if just our work in some of that collectively in the room with one another, just say, can I just pray with you? I'd just like to pray with you. I'd like to thank God for some of those truths. I'd like to pray, I'd like to outwork how I feel in response to the truth of that. But pray with one another. This doesn't need to be a lonely exercise. Otherwise, this is a big room where people can feel lonely, even though there's a lot of people around them. So just the band will start to play behind, but we won't start to sing something collectively together just for a few minutes. So just take a bit of a chance now to turn to someone, can I just pray with you? And you don't even need to be locked into chairs. I'm really sorry for chairs because it does make you feel like you're in a pew, but you're not. You can move, you can travel into the room. There's someone that you know is here at the moment, you're like, I'd just love to pray with them. Go and ask them, go and pray with them now. So just spend a few minutes with each other, it's fine, there'll be a bit of noise. Don't have to feel awkward about a bit of hubbub. 